Welcome to 15 Minutes of Feminism, part of our On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine platform. You know this is a show where we report, rebel, and tell it just like it is. And on 15 Minutes of Feminism, we take you through a deep and substantive dive with a quick take. So on today's show, it's the second installment of our Road to Confirmation series. We'll be following the confirmation process of President Biden's nominee, which is Judge Kataji Jackson, to replace Justice Stephen Breyer on the United States Supreme Court. On the Issues is taking you through each step of the confirmation process as it happens in real time with commentary and analysis from experts. This week, I'm joined by Dean Danielle Holly Walker of Howard University Law School, and we'll also be hearing from Professor Stephen Vladek. Dean Danielle Holly Walker, thank you for being back with me and for our 15 Minutes of Feminism platform. And what a day in history this is. February 25th, 2022 is the day in which Judge Katanji Brown Jackson is nominated by President Biden to serve on the United States Supreme Court. What's your take on that? So first, I'm so grateful to be here with you um, this afternoon on such a historic day um, to see the nomination of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, just an incredibly qualified, um, brilliant jurist um, to serve on the Supreme Court. It's been an extraordinary day, and I'm looking forward to hopefully a confirmation process that is reflective of the high caliber judge that she really is. Well, she certainly deserves to have a confirmation process that is dignified and that flows with integrity and without stereotype and stigma. But there are concerns that the waters have already been muddied and that they may be muddied even more. And to that, we're going to take a quick listen right now to Steve Vladek as he shares with us a bit about her qualifications. Michelle, I, you know, I'm, I'm not one who thinks that prior judicial experience is the sine qua non of qualifications. But for those who want to say that it is, you know, let's be clear about Judge Jackson's experience. She has already just under nine years of experience as a federal judge. Um, that's more than four of the current justices, Justices Thomas, Roberts, Kagan, and Barrett combined. Um, when they were confirmed. Uh, it's more than four of the last 10 justices. It's more than nine of the last 17. It's more than 43 of the 58 appointed since 1900. So, you know, I don't think it should be the case that judicial experience is a prerequisite for a Supreme Court appointment. I think we have plenty of examples of fantastic justices who had very little prior judicial experience, if any. Um, but for those who want to make this a talking point, I mean, like every other relevant benchmark, you know, Judge Jackson is way over the mark. One other area, Steve, and I really appreciate that you bringing that to the fore because that data is critical. She also represents a difference on the court just in terms of her academic background before college even. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, she she went to right, uh, you know, she went to the sort of the public school system, right? She's a product of a public school education, which fewer and fewer of the justices are. Um, you know, to me, Michelle, that's part of the story here. But also, I would say, like, she has such experience as a criminal defense lawyer. I mean, right? There are no, there's never been a public defender on the Supreme Court. Um, eight of the nine current justices have never tried a case. Only Justice Sotomayor, who is a prosecutor. And so, you know, to me, it's when people use 
use the word diversity to refer to Judge Jackson, I, I think it goes so much further than the fact that she'd be the first black woman on the court. It's that she would add so many experiences, so many perspectives, such, I think, a sort of important rounding out of our legal system um, that, you know, is not going to move the court overnight. We're not going to see an immediate shift in the court center of gravity, but it's impossible to sort of, you know, conclude that it won't have some kind of long-term impact, that the relationship she built with her colleagues, you know, won't move them much the same way that Justices O'Connor and Ginsburg, right, moved their colleagues on questions of sex discrimination and sex equality. So I just, you know, I, I think it's a really exciting pick, not just because of the landmark nature of it, but because Judge Jackson's resume is diversifying the court in so many other rich, important, and to my mind, neglected uh, respects. So what do you think of what we've just heard from Professor Stephen Bladdock? I think it's important for us to remember that for most people in the United States, although all of us are legal experts, for most people in the United States, this is the first day that they've ever heard of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. And because of that, it's incredibly important that we do talk about her qualifications as we would for any Supreme Court nominee. She is an honors graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School. She grew up in a modest circumstance in Miami, Florida, two parents who grew up in segregation. Um, she has an incredible breadth of legal experience, private practice at Morrison and Forrester. She served on the sentencing commission. And I think one of the most important facts about her is she would be the first ever Supreme Court justice to have been a public defender. The people in our legal community who really defend the rights, the constitutional rights, of those who have been charged with a crime. And I think that that is one of the most important pieces of public service that you can do. But I think we have to really remember that most people are not as absorbed in this as we are. And so we need to speak very carefully and clearly about what Judge Jackson has done since the time she was a teenager to prepare herself for this moment, including clerking for Justice Breyer. Well, that's awfully interesting, isn't it, too? Because this vacancy will become available because it's Justice Stephen Breyer who has announced his retirement from the court. And now, I mean, I wonder what you think of that. I mean, is that, should that be remembered and recorded in history that even if it's subtle, that perhaps Justice Breyer has also opened the door just a little bit? I think when we talk about the first Black woman to be nominated, I think we expected that there would be a tax on her qualifications. We saw a lot of that before there was a nominee, a kind of generalized doubt about whether this nominee would be qualified. One of the things that her clerking on the Supreme Court tells us is that she has been intentional in her preparation for this moment, and that many people who want to ascend to the level of a federal judge or ultimately to the Supreme Court, take that step of clerking. And she's clerked three times. So she clerked district court, appellate court, and Supreme Court. She's prepared. And she's been working at this for a long time. And I think that that will resonate with a lot of people in our country who set out, had big dreams, and were from circumstances in which those dreams weren't very clear about how you would get there, and then worked intentionally step by step. And that, I think, is really Judge Jackson's story. That is Judge Jackson's story. And as you've mentioned, it is a story that includes that level of preparation, but also a commitment to criminal 
social justice. And some people might see that as antithetical because after all, she will be the first justice on the court uh, if confirmed, and we believe that she will be, who has served as a public defender. I think when we talk about diversity, and this is why I'm loving this moment so much, it's obviously a moment to talk about intersectionality, to talk about what it means to be a Black woman, um, but it's a moment about the diversity of experience that we see on the court. As Professor Vladek talked about, very few of our Supreme Court justices have been trial court judges and appellate court judges. She will be the first to have this experience as a public defender. Very few have had the experience of working private sector, public sector, and having judicial experience. I cannot (laughs) even imagine most people having done what Judge Jackson has done, and she's only 51 years old. So the level, and I think that came through today in her remarks, which I really encourage people, if you did not watch her remarks today, to go back and watch her remarks when she's being introduced by President Biden. She's a mother. She's a wife. She is a really funny public speaker um, and really engaging public speaker. And I loved her reference to Constance Baker Motley. I think that's the moment where I got texts from people around the country and now people of all races, all backgrounds saying how touched they were at her paying tribute to a foremother, um, to Constance Baker Motley in this important moment in her career. And so before we quickly turn to what's next, I actually want to stay on that important point that you've just made. And I'm so happy that you are with me because we're a country that unfortunately has rarely seen, if ever, that indigenous people, black people, Asian American people are foremothers and forefathers, right? The the foremothers and forefathers by design, and it seems by default are always white, but America has amazing foreparents who represent people of color, who are people of color, who were people of color. And that's an important point that you've just made. It really touched me today to hear, you know, the story even of her parents, uh, where she talked about, you know, her father who worked and put himself through law school. Um, And also that, you know, we recognize that this moment would not be possible without people like Shirley Chisholm, incredible lawyers like Polly Murray um, and Constance Baker Motley. And I think we are now at a moment in our country's history in which we can clearly say that there are those of us who the people who inspired us to be where we are today look like us. And we can actually name them when there is a moment like this important one where she could have named many people. And she did. She named all of the judges she clerked for. She thanked Justice Breyer. But she also said one of the things that inspired her was sharing a birthday with the first Black woman ever to serve in the federal judiciary, Constance Baker Motley. And to me, that was very intentional and also demonstrated that there were women before her, Black women before her, who were qualified to be on the Supreme Court, who never got the opportunity and likely they never got the opportunity because of their race and gender. And so when she's stepping into this moment, it's not because she's a black woman. It is her breaking a barrier that other black women have not had the opportunity to break because the door was never open for them. Well, that's an important point that you make because even the United States Supreme Court has been a barrier to women being able to advance in the law. Breadwell v. Illinois, a case in which the United States Supreme Court upholds a law that bars women from becoming lawyers, a case in which a woman wants to practice with her husband, has actually graduated from law school, an Illinois law that says women are not allowed to become lawyers, and the U.S. Supreme Court upholding that law. 
the U.S. Supreme Court saying that women were destined for the home and that the laws of nature govern that. And there is, you know, there's no nature ringing the phone to, to, to right. justices or sending a magic scroll saying this is what we decided, but this is what the Supreme Court decided. And that was what legislatures decided. And so those barriers were real. And it's great to now see those barriers falling away. And your point is so well taken that what we've had before are segregated institutions and our Supreme Court being one of them. So what's going to happen going forward uh, with the confirmation process? What, how do you think this is going to go? So we know that uh, she's received bipartisan confirmation uh, multiple times. This will be her third confirmation. She's had a confirmation to the district court and to the appellate court to the D.C. Circuit. They were both done on bipartisan votes. So what we would think is that her nomination should proceed with a bipartisan vote. But we also have seen over the last decade and really before that, but how politicized this process has really become. Um, and so I think the next step is obviously for her to meet with senators. We haven't heard a lot yet substantively. I'm sure we'll get some of that on the Sunday morning shows. Um, we haven't heard the talking points yet, except for this claim that she is somehow um, especially liberal leaning when we know that that is not true. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, there's a terminology of radical being used, radical, which seems liberal. to be right, yes. just a kind of dog whistle. Yeah, and I also think it is one of those things that will be proven false, even with just a small bit of scrutiny. And I also think if you saw her today um, in her opening remarks, we have a preview of what will likely be a masterful handling of her confirmation hearing. Um, And I know she will be well prepared. She will meet with senators um, starting next week. Any senator who wants to meet with her in person will have the opportunity to meet with her next week. And I think any senator with an open mind and an open heart um, and an understanding of the credentials. And let's face it, a lot of these senators voted for Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Um, less than two years ago. And I would put their resume side by side and ask the question to any senator, why would you vote for Judge Barrett and not vote for Judge Jackson? Um, How could you vote for Judge Gorsuch and not vote for Judge Jackson? Um, I think her resume, if we were talking about facts and credentials, and again, that's very important. And I think we need to, of course, educate the public on what are her credentials, because seeing her credentials, she's everything that any person who is a defender of the Constitution would want to see in a Supreme Court justice. She, If we opened up the book on Supreme Court, her face would be right her, there. Her picture should be her there. Her picture would be there in the dictionary under the kind of qualifications that she should have for a Supreme Court justice. So again, I echo your comments in that we want to see a respectful and fair an unbiased process, which is a reflection of the hard work and high qualifications that she has. And I hope that we see her confirmed in a bipartisan vote. I think anything less than that would uh, be below the standards for how the Senate should perform the advice and consent process. That's a strong statement, but I stand by it in the sense that I believe her qualifications and her just unimpeachable ethics. She's also known as a highly, highly ethical judge, thoughtful person, um, and highly prepared. I just hope that this is a confirmation hearing that reflects all of that. Well, we will circle back uh, with you 
and with some of our fellow travelers as we cover this confirmation process, the Road to Confirmation series that we've launched. And I'm so happy that you were part of our first conversation, that you're here with me for the second. And I want to close out this interview by asking you, what in all of this do you see as the silver lining? One of the incredible silver linings to me is that every time we break a glass ceiling, there are women, there are men, there are girls, there are boys all over this country who for the first time say, you know, I may be the first one to do something and I can do it, right? There may be a young woman right now who's sitting at home and says, wait a second, she in all of these years, hundreds of years of the Supreme Court is now the first Black woman nominee why don't I become the first of something else? Or I can become the second or the third of another field, um, which has very few Black women in it. And so that to me is one of the takeaways, but also just to see this woman celebrated today, even if we know the process is going to be much more difficult, but to see her there today with President Biden and also with the first Black woman and woman of Indian descent, to see her there with Vice President Kamala Harris, it was an incredibly moving and special moment. And I hope that we don't lose that in all of this. The historic nature of what we saw today is very important and should lift us up at a dark time in our country, because obviously things are very difficult. And today was one of the first times that I really had a genuine smile in quite a few weeks about something that was happening in our public discourse and in our government. And it really should be a moment for Americans of all backgrounds to celebrate having such an outstanding Supreme Court nominee. Dean Danielle Holly Walker, I want to thank you for joining me. And I want to thank you for your message about the importance of joy and the importance of not letting folks steal our joy, including in these times. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yes, and listeners, that's it for today's 15 Minutes of Feminism episode. I want to thank my guest, Dean Danielle Holly Walker, and I also want to thank my good friend, Professor Stephen Vladek, for dropping by our virtual studio, bringing you our Road to Confirmation series. You'll be hearing much more from us on the confirmation of Judge Katanji Jackson. And to our listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope that you're going to join us again for our next episode where we're always reporting, rebelling, and you know we're telling it just like it is. And if you want to learn more about what we discussed today and follow our confirmation series, then check in at MsMagazine.com. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America and being unbought and unbossed and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate and review our 15 Minutes of Feminism, the On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin podcast, and we are everywhere. Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there. We're ad-free and reader-supported. So make sure that we're reaching new listeners and bringing that hard-hitting content that you've come to expect by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show, and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to recommend guests to us for our show or you want to pitch to us, then reach out at ontheissues at MsMagazine.com and we do read our mail. 
This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production, just like 15 Minutes of Feminism. Michelle Goodwin and Kathy Spiller are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll and Oliver Hogg. Our social media intern is Lillian LaSalle. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Kyle Good, and music by Chris J. Lee, social media assistance from Lillian LaSalle.